Please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 47. The end of chapter 47, we're picking up in verse 29 today as we move through chapter 48. Coming close to the end here of Genesis. I can't tell you when we started. I need to look back at that date and how long we've been in Genesis, but you all know it's, it's, it's been a couple, couple of weeks at least. So, <laughs> Genesis 47, beginning in verse 29. This is God's word. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now for your two, and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in in the inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both. Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. 
Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Thanks be to God for his word to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you for your word, that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And we pray that you would now open your word to our hearts and instruct us, teach us, plant your truths deep within us, that we may walk in greater faith and rest in who you are. That we would see you as the God of our fathers, our shepherd, and our redeemer. And just as you have been faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so you will be faithful to us. Lord, may you use these words today to comfort our hearts, especially as we are in a time of uncertainty and questioning and wondering what even our nation might look like in the coming days. May you put on display for us today your kingly reign, that you alone are king, that you are sovereign over all matters, and that our hope and our confidence is not to be found in men or kings or armies or chariots, but in you alone. So strengthen that faith today through your word that we might be confident that we are yours, that you hold us in your hand, and that nothing can pluck us from your hand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In these final chapters of Genesis, as we come to the end of Jacob's life, we see that he pronounces a series of blessings over his sons. And in this particular passage, it is the blessing over Joseph and his sons. But there's more going on than just the blessing of Joseph. You may have wondered where these names of the half-tribes... If you ever memorized the, the, the tribes of Israel, you notice that there's, you know, in, in, in later times, there's these two half-tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. There's not a tribe of Joseph. Where, where does this come from? Well, this passage explains what went on to lead to that. It's in no way disrespecting Joseph. Joseph didn't get shortchanged through this experience. Instead, Jacob adopts Joseph's sons who were, in a sense, they weren't outside of the covenant, obviously, but they were, in a sense, outside of the, the, the family. They had been born and raised in Egypt. They had not experienced growing up in Canaan. They had not experienced the stories of their uh, father and their grandfather, of their aunts and uncles, and, and all of the things that, that we experience in, in family, in covenant community. And so Jacob is graciously bringing these two young men back in. In many ways, this story is all, it's kind of unexpected. It doesn't follow the norms. It's We've maybe come to expect it because we've seen this happen so many times in Genesis where God kind of flips things upside down, but this is another account of that. And it's often how grace works in unexpected ways. It's what we might call the economy of grace. In 1 Corinthians 1, 27, we read, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's one of the clearest explanations of the economy of grace and how it works. It's not the smartest one who scores the highest. It's not the fastest one who wins the medal. 
It's not the best one who is honored. Instead, grace bestows in love favor on the undeserving, the unworthy, the one who hasn't earned it at all. And if you're anything like me, that is of great comfort. It's of great comfort to know that not only have I not earned it, I can't earn it. I don't have to earn it. Christ has done for me what I could not do for myself. This is the opposite of how we think, though. It's the opposite of how we're wired. We talk about that little legalist inside of all of us, the one that wants to turn everything into to law and order. And, and, and it's how the world functions as well. The world honors the brightest, the most charismatic, the most charming, the overachiever. The world's economy says you have to earn it and you get what you deserve. The world says we have our systems and our rules of order, and although they may change daily, you must submit. But the gospel of grace comes and says to us what we just read in 1 Corinthians 1. In that same chapter in 1 Corinthians in verse 18, it also says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This kind of transformative thinking is not something that comes in our lives one time. That when we come to saving faith in Christ, that we're now, that our thinking is, is completely sanctified. This is something that many of us, if not all of us, will fight the rest of our lives to think rightly about what the gospel means for us. Because what happens is the world's thinking, we're being bombarded with it all the time. I mean, it's constantly in our face. And so the world's thinking begins to, in a sense, layer itself over the gospel. And we have to come back and be daily renewed, transformed by the gospel to know how to think. Because if we don't, we'll say things to ourselves like, you can never measure up. God will never be pleased with you because why? We sin daily. Or you can never be the husband or wife, the child or parent that you want to be that will bring success in family life because you just can't get it right. Or that God is going to get you, that He's going to punish you when you misstep, that He's just waiting to pounce on you. These are all things that the evil one whispers. You know, Satan is known as the father of lies. He whispers both lies and also partial lies, half-truths. You know, when we swear in before giving testimony, we swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. What is the difference between the whole truth and not the whole truth? Well, one of the things that Satan whispers into our ears is, cursed are the ones who can't abide by the holy law of God. That's true, but it's not the whole truth. Because the gospel of grace grace resounds to that, and says to us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what we need to hear. Because of God's redeeming grace toward us, we don't get what we deserve. Instead, because of His wonderful grace to us in Christ, we get His unending favor. What a remarkable thing. That's the song of grace. It's the song that Jacob is singing in the final days of his life. As he blesses his sons. This is a different Jacob, <clears throat> excuse me, even than what we saw in the last chapter about 17 years earlier. Jacob has really been transformed. This is the song that we need to sing throughout our lives as well, this song of grace. That is, that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who has been faithful to them, will also be faithful to us. He doesn't change. 
that He is our shepherd who leads us in green pastures by cool streams, who restores our soul. He is our Redeemer, as Jacob says, who has met the requirement of the law on our behalf, what we couldn't do for ourselves, saving us from the just wrath of God. That song of grace, of God's unmerited favor to us, is the song that we must sing to ourselves now and that we will get to sing for all eternity. As we look in verse 29 of 47, we see that Jacob is in the final days of his life. We can't pinpoint it how close to the end he is, but we we're told that he, he lives to 147, so there's this 17-year period. This is toward the end of that time. And as he comes to the end of, of, of his life, and you know, we always wonder with Jacob, because he said this so many times, I'm about to die, I'm about to die, I'm about to die. He thinks he's going to die so many different times, and you kind of wonder if this really is the end. And, and it is, it's coming to the end. He wants to be buried, though, in Canaan, not in Egypt. And this seems something of, of great importance to him when we look at how he says this to Joseph. He makes him swear to him that you'll take my body to Egypt. This is not Jacob's way of being nostalgic or superstitious. He is not short-sighted into thinking that where his body ends up is of any value in an earthly sense. But this is instead an act of worship. It is an act of faith that he is acknowledging the promises that were given to his grandfather and to his father and then to him that he is now passing on, that the land of Canaan was the promised land, the land promised to them. And so to be buried with his fathers was an act of worship. It was an act of faith and trust in what God said he would do, that he would do. And we see this captured at the end and that he bowed himself down as much as his old body would allow on his bed or on his staff. Now, depending, we read the ESV, it says on his bed. Some translations say on the staff. Um, the consonants are the same in both words, and if you understand Hebrew, they don't include the vowels, and so you have to figure those things out, which most of the time isn't a problem until you come to a rare situation like this. And so some translators say bed and staff. He was in the bed. His staff would have been there with him. The importance isn't necessarily on the word. But when the New Testament writer captures this same scenario or the scenario uh, around the sons, it pictures him leaning on his staff in Hebrews 11.21. That's how it describes it. The important thing, though, is that he is bowing in worship. That's that's what's important. Whether it was on his bed, on his staff, the, the, the thing that we need to see is that he was bowing in worship, that in the final days of his life, at this final stage, that Jacob is demonstrating what we read in Romans 12.1 to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And Jacob worshiped in this moment. Well, shortly after he made this pledge with Joseph for his body to be returned, it says that he became ill. His body is in decline. And in verse 1 of chapter 48, it says that he summoned Joseph to him, and Joseph went, taking his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Israel's attendants announce their arrival. He said, uh, they, they tell him that Joseph has come to him, and this is most likely because his eyesight is failing. Uh, we're told that in verse 10, that Jacob is struggling to see. Verse 2 tells us that he summoned what strength he had. He was able to sit up in bed. It's a, it's a bit of an insight, a bit, bit of a glimpse into the, the, just how frail his body was. It was just all he could do to even sit up in bed. This is how sick he had become. And so he sits up in bed. And Jacob then recounts the promises that God had given him. He goes back in his mind to that time at Luz, which is also called Bethel. 
You remember the first time he came there and he worshipped God. God came to him and he, he, he uh, repeated the promises that he had given to his grandfather and father. He gave them then to Jacob there at Bethel after he had come out of that time in Mesopotamia and Padan Aram. He came back. The first, one of the first things we see happen is that God gives him those promises. And that's how the covenant works. The covenant goes on. The promises continue. It's not dependent on their behavior. If anyone, not that Abraham had earned it because he didn't, and not that Isaac earned it, but Jacob certainly didn't earn it either. It wasn't dependent on their behavior. God keeps his promises. We reap the benefits. That's how covenant works. And so Jacob goes back into his mind into this time to remember uh, that this is, it's all grace. It's all grace all the time. This is how the economy of grace works. It doesn't follow our traditions. It doesn't always meet our expectations. And in this episode, we see some of that. Here are these grandsons of Jacob that he's adopting to make his own. These were two young men in their late teens, early 20s. They didn't need to be adopted. They weren't looking. They were not orphans. They had a father and mother, but they had lived outside of the covenant community. And this is why it's important. One of the reasons, there's a number of reasons why Jacob does this. But if you think about how strange this was, these two boys were born and raised in Egypt. Their mother was of a priestly family. Their father was second in charge in all of the land. In essence, these boys were Egyptian royalty. You know how enamored people in the world are with the royal family and the kids and how their lives are set. They, they want for nothing. This is, in essence, what these two boys' lives were. They didn't need to receive the promise of a piece of real estate northeast of there in a place called Canaan, a place they had probably never even seen with their own eyes. They didn't need this. Their paths were set. But God has other plans. And in this adoption by their grandfather... Manasseh and Ephraim become to him, verse 5 tells us, as Reuben and Simeon. In other words, they become the firstborn. Joseph and his sons, through this adoption process, move into the firstborn position. They now have that rightful position of blessing, of prosperity. Now, it's hard maybe to see that from this passage alone, but First Chronicles 5 explains to us what is happening here in Genesis 48. Let me read it to you, First Chronicles 5, verse 1. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn, he was the firstborn by Leah, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. That's what's happening here, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son, Reuben. Though Judah became strong, we've seen that, that continued on, and among, among his brothers, and a chief came from him. We know where that's pointing as well, the line of the tribe of Judah. Yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So Joseph, and through his sons now, are moving into that firstborn position. Who was Joseph the firstborn of? Rachel. And that's why verse 7, Jacob kind of goes off. You know, he's talking and he goes off. You can, you know, it sounds like he's, what, what is he talking about? Rachel dying, Bethlehem buried and all of this. He's thinking of this was who he intended to marry. In his mind all along, Joseph was the firstborn, even though God had given him other children. And so that's why he brings Rachel into the story here. But God is rearranging according to his prerogative 
now the two sons of Joseph, the grandsons of Jacob, into that firstborn position. Notice in verse 5, also Jacob refers to their names in reverse order. It's pointing to something that he is about to do. Something, again, that is unexpected. Well, when Joseph presents his sons to Jacob for the formal part of the adoption, Jacob asks the question, who are these? Who are these? Seems like a strange question. They've been sitting there the whole time. Yes, his eyesight's failing. Maybe that's why he's asking the question. I think, though, that there's a better explanation. I think this is probably more formal language of the adoption and blessing ceremony. We have similar things in our own practices when a uh, when we have a marriage the bride is walked down the aisle by her father what does the minister say who gives this woman to be married to this man it's not that everybody doesn't know who the father of the bride is it's not this great surprise like oh who's this you know it's a formal way of inviting the parents because the father usually responds her mother and I it's a formal way of bringing them into the ceremony and so this is a formal question in that sense we see it in the Passover as well this is still practiced to this day where children ask the same question every year and the parents give the same response it's recorded in Exodus 12 And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And so I think that's more likely what's happening here when Jacob asks, who are these? And Joseph then responds, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And Jacob said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. And Joseph then brings them close to his father, and we're told later that he removed them from his knees. So at this point, they sat on his knees, although it's it's possible this is symbolic that they sat next to his knees. I have a hard time imagining uh, how two nearly 20-year-old young men sat on a very elderly man's knees, and he didn't grimace. Maybe they were gentle and they just kind of crouched the whole time. I don't know, but that's it's symbolic. That's what they were doing by moving in, moving closely for this uh, this uh, this blessing that he's going to pronounce over them. But before he says the blessing, look at what he says in verse eleven. I never, and I don't think he said this without tears. I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. What grandfather couldn't say those words who had experienced what Jacob had experienced without tears in his eyes? And what a transformation in Jacob's life. This is the same guy who, as we saw last week, when Pharaoh said, how old are you? He responded, oh, short and evil have been my days. And he went on to say, I haven't lived as long as my father and my grandfather just complaining, complaining, complaining. And now here's this transformation in his life where he says, Oh, God has let me see your offspring also. He's filled with gratefulness and it overflows out of his heart and his mouth. Joseph then responds to these words. Joseph doesn't say anything that's recorded. He simply bows in worship before God. Joseph is moved by these words that his father says. And he doesn't uh, I mean, we, we don't have all the, you know, the narrative obviously leaves things out. We don't have everything, but, but his ultimate response above everything else is to worship God. Just as Jacob praised God for letting him see not only his son again, but his grandsons, now Joseph praises the one who has in essence restored what the locusts have stolen. 
And then Joseph takes his two sons, he puts them on either side. And you notice the text is very particular about the order. It's setting the stage so that you get this mental picture. Ephraim, the younger one, is on uh, Jacob's right side so that he's facing the left hand of Israel. And Manasseh is on uh, Joseph's uh, left so he's facing Israel's right hand, which would have been the hand of honor, the hand of blessing. So Joseph's setting the stage for them to be rightfully blessed by their father. He knew the birth order. But Jacob does something surprising here. He takes his hands and he crosses them. He crosses them before he places the blessing, before he pronounces them. Verse 15 says, and he blessed Joseph. So again, here's Joseph standing in the middle. He's crossed his hands on Ephraim and Manasseh and he pronounces the blessing over Joseph but it's obviously to his sons as well. This is the picture of covenant. And Joseph isn't being shortchanged here. He's not getting the short end of the stick. But by his sons being adopted, they are being brought back in to completely into the faith community. Things are being reoriented in the way that they should be. The blessing that Jacob gives is the summary of the blessing that God had given him his father and his grandfather, that he would be a blessing to the nations, that God would make him grow. And he also includes these words of praise in the blessing. He calls him the God of my fathers. He's attributing the covenantal promises, that God's promises are sure that they will not uh, be interrupted, that they will not change, that God's promises are forever. He also calls him my shepherd, It's a picture of Psalm 23, like uh, caring for, walking with. You think of all that Jacob has been through. The the difficulties, I mean, he he faced some, I mean, the injustices from Laban's hand alone were enough to pull all your hair out. But he, I mean, he faced all kinds of, of tribulation through his life. And much of it was because of his own sin. And yet God was his shepherd through it all, leading him, caring for him, guiding him. He also calls God his Redeemer, the one who has protected him and delivered him and made him his own by faith. What an incredible testimony. Here at the end of Jacob's life, a testimony of faith, a testimony given in worship. Think of all the times that Jacob thought the griefs of life were going to bring him to death. But we have only a handful that are recorded in Scripture. But you get the gist from Jacob's attitude. This is kind of what he was doing all the time. I'm, this is going to kill me. Oh, you know, it just this is the end. And though he lived his life thinking that way, God had brought him to a good old age and had transformed him into a man not filled with grief, but filled with praise. In the crossing of his hands, he demonstrates God's sovereign prerogative to choose the younger over the older. It's not that God always does this, but it is his prerogative. We've seen this happen a few times in Genesis, haven't we? Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over Reuben, now Ephraim over Manasseh. And Manasseh would grow into a great tribe of people. He's, he's not, it's not a bad thing for Manasseh but Ephraim is going to grow into an even greater tribe. Well, Joseph witnesses all of this happening, and he thinks that he needs to correct it, right? 
Dad's old. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's, he's going blind. He can't see. I need to fix this. It even says that he was uh, displeased by his father in verse 17. And he attempts to move his father's hands back and saying in verse 18, Not this way, my father, since this one's the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But Jacob refused. And look what he says. I know, my son. I know. What a tender, loving, strong act of leadership. It's, it's, this, is, this is a picture, I think, of our Heavenly Father. How many times have we come to God and said, no, God, you've gotten it wrong. Why is this happening in my life? And we hear the loving words of, I know my son. I know my daughter. I know. We've done it as parents. In that moment where we recognize that our, our child has a legitimate concern, They just simply don't know what we know. And so Jacob, because he knew what he knew, then lovingly explains to Joseph and his grandsons that the younger will surpass the elder brother according to God's plan. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak to shame the strong, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to things that are. The first will be last. And the last will be first. Now, I want to be clear about this. This is not a formula. You know how we love to turn things into formulas, don't we? We'd love to take this and say, okay, now I figured God out. I'm going to put him in a box. I know what he's going to do. No, 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 no. That's the whole thing of grace. If you want to know anything about the economy of grace is that you don't understand. You don't know. God is going to surprise you. We can't put him in a box. And that means that we can't come to Him with demands according to grace. Grace doesn't allow us to make demands. Oh, we try it. We pray things like, Lord, I didn't cheat on my taxes when I could have gotten away with it. You have to save my business. Or I didn't get mad at my spouse. I took it on the chin, so you have to fix my marriage. Or I raised my kids right, Lord. You have to keep them from harm. I gave up smoking and eating unhealthy food. You have to keep me from getting sick. You have to heal me. We don't get to call the shots. We don't get to use grace according to our own selfish economy. All that we can get to say is, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Woe is me, for I am undone. Lord, where else can I go? You have the very words of life. God, save me, deliver me, help me. That's it. We don't have a leg to stand on. But as we do this, we get the help and God gets the glory. The beauty of the economy of grace is that God works in often surprising ways to accomplish His purposes, which always include Him keeping His promises. He never breaks His promises. We never get room to boast. And His matchless love in the end shines even brighter than we could ever imagine. That's the way grace works. Well, the final words of blessing from Jacob to Joseph and his sons, we could summarize it this way. He says to them, you guys are going to be so fruitful that your own people are going to bless each other by saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. What a cool blessing (laughs) that one day your name would be used in such a way. That's That's... What Jacob's saying to him, you guys are going to be so fruitful 
that your own descendants are going to say, they're going to bless each other by saying, God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. God takes these two half-Hebrew children. They've never even seen Canaan as far as we know. And He blesses them over the sons and the grandsons who were natives, who grew up in the land, who had been part of the family all along. He takes these two. He blesses the younger one over the older one. And then He sets them on a course for prosperity among the nation of Israel. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit human convention. It doesn't even line up with our own wisdom. And yet, it magnifies the goodness and the love and the grace of God. How so? Is it just because He made them prosperous? Well, no, because the prosperity isn't going to be seen by them. Ephraim and Manasseh, well, first of all, they were already prosperous. Don't think this is about earthly prosperity. I mean, these two kids, they were royalty in Egypt. They had it all. This wasn't about stuff. This was about prosperity of a different kind. In fact, the next generations between this promise and the fulfillment of the promise, hundreds of years later, there would specifically come 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Put yourself in there. There would be generations of people in the line of this promise that one day your descendants are going to use your name as a blessing to their others. God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. There were going to be generations in this 400 years who were in the name of Ephraim and Manasseh who would know nothing but suffering. Slavery under the hands of their oppressors in the land of Egypt. This is so important for us to understand. We want deliverance now. We want material prosperity now. We want convenience now. We want comfort now. We want healing now. We want God to make it all better now. And the fathers and mothers of our faith, the Scripture is full of them who knew nothing but suffering. Because they were looking for a deliverance beyond this world. We have to understand that. The writer of Hebrews captures this when it lists the hall of faith in chapter 11, all of those mothers and fathers in the faith. And then it says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. That better country, that city that God has prepared for them, is not only for them, but for you and for me who are by faith in Christ. God is going to turn over everything that has been flipped upside down. He's going to right all that has been wrong. He is going to mend all that has been shredded. He is going to repair everything that has been broken. He is going to heal all of our wounds. The economy of grace is not that He simply uses the foolish things in this life and this world to shame the wise. He does do that. He often... He often takes our best efforts, the things that we think are going to succeed, that we put all the effort in, that we think are so wise. He flips them upside down. They turn into colossal failures. And then we go along, and the thing that we think is the biggest failure and the biggest muck-up of our whole life, He takes it and redeems it 
and uses it to accomplish incredible things. That's the economy of grace. But that's not the end of the economy of grace because God is also going to take all of our tragedies, all of our sufferings, all of our mistakes, the injustices that we've experienced, the shame that we know. He is going to exchange these for an eternal weight of glory, the text says, beyond all comparison. We often talk about that eternal weight of glory. Don't forget beyond all comparison. You can't even imagine what God has in store, what He's going to do. Right now, our eyes are cloudy. Like Jacob's, we can't see. We can't imagine how anything good will ever come out of the mess that we're in. But God has promised and He always keeps His promises. We mustn't ignore His voice. If you are not, if you have not trusted in Christ today, hear Him call to you. His grace is offered freely in Christ. Trust in Him and know the forgiveness of sins. Know what it means to be in this economy of grace where it's not the worthy who get it. It's the unworthy. Those of us who don't deserve it. I want to close by reading something that is just written so much better than I could say myself about this economy of grace. Ian Duguid writes, If you are already trusting in this God, remember today that He is your faithful shepherd who will redeem all of your evil. That means that all the evil circumstances in your life right now, the sins that others are committing against you or the sins that you have committed that are bearing bitter fruit or those out-of-control aspects of your life that are so painful, all are under His sovereign control and will not be wasted. Yes, they really are evil. You don't have to pretend that these events are something other than that. We live in an evil and broken world. However, as the cross and the resurrection of Jesus demonstrate, we serve a God who regularly brings glorious light out of the deepest darkness. Beautiful good. Out of the ugliest evil. Perfect healing out of painful sickness and resurrection life out of death itself. This is the faithful shepherding God who has committed Himself to lead you until the day of your death and then welcome you into a glorious inheritance in Christ in which all of the evil of your life will be beautifully and wondrously redeemed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. It's grace that has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Heavenly Father, help us to get it. Make our hearts get it. Make us understand that we are wholly yours. We don't have the reins of our life. We've never had the reins of our life. Our lives apart from you are out of control and without hope. So help us to get that in you, You who hold all things together, we have not only hope and assurance, but we can see a country and a city, a heavenly place in which all will be made right. And Lord, we look to the day when we see that face to face, eye to eye, not through a glass dimly, but that eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison will be sight. Lord, we long for that day. But until that day comes, we beg you, Lord, strengthen our hearts. 
guard our minds, keep us from not only becoming despondent and filled with anxiety and fear, but Lord, keep us from thinking that we have to fix it ourselves or that we can fix it ourselves. Lord, all of our hope is in you. You are our shepherd. You are our redeemer. You are the God of our fathers. We have seen you faithful time and time again, and we know that you are faithful to us. We thank you for this, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stay.